Hey everybody, Ryan here, and you are listening to The Poison Lab. Today, we have another rendition of Toxicologist vs. the Internet with special guest Dr. Andrew Farkas. This is maybe my favorite episode. In this episode, we're going to start out solving cases of fatal poison. For my listeners that are just here for the case learning, we get into it by minute nine. So go ahead and skip ahead if that's what you're interested in. Then we dive into answering questions from reddit.com slash r slash askdrugs. We'll be covering topics like what toxins to worry about if all of your pets are dying, risks of cocaethylene, limitations of drug testing, and some more fun conversation like what five drugs would you have in the apocalypse or how can you trigger a pharmacist in under five drugs? all with some great discussion, toxicologic insights, and hard-hitting questions along the way. Does Rockeronium work on zombie physiology? You know, I thought that. Can we do the pharmacist nightmare five drugs next? I think it's a great episode, and I can't wait for you to hear it. But before we dive in, a couple disclaimers. We will be answering questions on the internet from people who might be trying to use illicit drugs for euphoric effects. While this provides us with a medium to have a lively discussion around pharmacologic and toxicologic concepts, we are in no way encouraging anyone to use illicit substances. In fact, dealing with the toxicities from illicit substance use is a frequent encounter for toxicologists. Anyone taking illicit substances exposes themselves to unregulated doses, potentially overdosing, as well as adulterants and contaminants that can have serious health consequences. If you are having trouble with substance use disorder, call 1-800-662-4357 to get to the SAMHSA National Helpline and get connected to the care that you deserve. Second, this is an educational show, and while we're going to have discussion around the potential health effects of toxins or drugs, this is not medical advice. If you have a question about your health or a potential toxic exposure, reach out to your doctor or call your local poison center, 1-800-222-1222, for free 24-7 access to trained medical experts who can help you get the free medical advice you need. All right, without further ado, let's dive in. Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning by people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Andrew Farkas, emergency physician and medical toxicologist, is joining our show. Dr. Farkas did his emergency medicine training as well as his two-year medical toxicology fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh. He's board certified in emergency medicine and med talks, and we are thrilled to have him on the show this morning. Welcome, Dr. Farkas. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'll I'll do my best. I feel like this is a lot of pressure. There's absolutely no pressure. I, I knew you'd say I knew you'd say that. No, this is my first um, 
I've listened to many podcasts, but I've never been on one. So, well, I'm very excited to have you on the show. Uh, for our listeners, um, I was first introduced to Dr. Farkas while he was giving an excellent fellows presentation at NACCT about um, anti-epileptic induced skin reactions from arene epoxide metabolites. That was um, it was a CPC competition. Yeah. CPC, okay, yeah, yeah. Which... And I my my gimmick was was I linked. Keanu Reeves movies to as many of the things that happened as possible. <laughs> That's because the, because the presentation was in Canada. Yes. Keanu Reeves. That was the you have to respect their president, Keanu Reeves. Exactly. <laughs> he's the he's the overarching president. I, I, I didn't win the CPC though. So that was That's good. I thought it was a great presentation. So anyone who can tie Keanu Reeves to uh, anti-epileptic induced skin reactions, I think is probably the perfect guest for this show. And uh, I am very excited to have you on. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. This is the earliest I've ever done a show. I have coffee. Coffee and not beer. Yeah, which is which is also perfect. So for the listeners at home, most of you know how these episodes work. But if you don't, we're going to spend half the episode working through some case differentials of some fatal overdoses. And then the other half is going to be spent uh, answering some questions from reddit.com slash r slash ask drugs. Uh, we did a little poll from some of our listeners and asked if you'd rather hear the, the cases or the questions first. And it was a uh, pretty resounding cases first. So we're going to actually kick the show off with diving into the cases, get those out of the way, get some good learning in. Uh, but first, uh, something I like to ask everyone who comes on this show and all the people who wind up in this interesting and I think pretty rewarding profession. Uh, Dr. Farkas, why toxicology? Why toxicology? What was your tox aha moment? It was, a, it was a few things. So I, I definitely kind of toyed with the idea of doing it in, you know, during residency, actually, like I set the record for the highest number of toxicology rotations in my <laughs> residency. The joke was that I basically did a fellowship, like a mini fellowship before I even started. <laughs> but actually, you no. Know, I, when I finished EM residency, I, I, I wanted to get better at EM because it's kind of terrifying when you first graduate from EM residency. And when you think about all the things you still don't know. Well, I worked in the community for a few years, but I started noticing that my favorite chief complaint was overdose. And I get really excited when I saw that on the board. And I was like, oh, I hope I get that one, you know? And uh, that was a clue. It was also the opportunity to become like an expert in something. I, I like the fact that emergency medicine is a, is a generalist field because the exposure to a lot of different, you know, organ systems and, and types of disease keeps things varied. But at the same time, that can sometimes prevent you from getting really deep in one area because you have to be, you know, that saying is a mile wide and an inch deep. We like to think we're a little more than an inch deep, but in any <laughs> event, um, doing fellowship was an opportunity uh, to, to further develop a very specific skill set, And I really value that zero doubt that it was the, it was the right thing for, for me and my career. And, and I'm a lot more satisfied with the, both maintaining my emergency medicine responsibilities, but having uh, opportunity to take care of the poison patient uh, on top of that and really get to know something really well. So that is my story. That's awesome. I, I wasn't aware that you actually practiced in community and then went yeah, back. Yeah, three years. That's awesome. Well, thank uh, you. And you have clearly dug your trench quite deep in toxicology. It is a mile wide and a mile deep. You've done oh, a no. lot of publications using some really great data sets to showcase the benefit of our law enforcement officers being equipped from naloxone. And of course, the value of routine toxicologic screening in psychiatric patients with no suicidal ideation or risk of exposure. And your data, I believe, supports that. It's 
probably not that necessary. Uh, I love the, my favorite thing about publishing something is seeing people fight about it over the internet though. Mm-hmm. Cause, cause there's a lot of people who are like, see, I told you it was pointless. And then you have other people who are like, I found three people this way with, you know, it's like the, it's the Bravo TV of studies. Uh, and then they yell and maybe that's like a borderline personality thing where I'm just uh, like, yes, fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, because of me. Um, but, but I, I do like that. I should be more active on social media. I just kind of, um, I just kind of lurk and like, like to read things, but I don't like to write things. I think as a general rule of thumb, uh, less social media is usually better for everyone. So I think that's okay. Yeah. Anyways, well, that's, that is awesome. Um, uh, and appreciate your research efforts into such topics. Thank you. Um, so I think we're going to go ahead and jump into our first segment of the show. And we're actually going to flip things around this week and actually start our show with cases. Cases. All right. Let's get your differential learning satisfied. Let's rock out some cases. So, for listeners, we are going to read some cases, uh, either sourced from case reports or uh, American Association of Poison Control Center fatality reports. These are real poisonings. Certainly don't want to make light of any of the toxicity that these patients suffered, um, but we do want to use these as good learning cases um, for people who might be confronted with a patient who has similar symptoms. Do you want Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I'll go first. Okay. So, the only rules are... Try to, I guess, avoid antidotes that would give it away. Yeah, I've, then... I've redacted that. Yeah. Okay, okay. And then, yeah, whatever you want to do. I'm, re- I'm ready. All right. Here what we go. A three-year-old boy awoke at home crying and complaining of ear pain and was brought to the ED. The patient arrived at the emergency department talking and answering questions, but rapidly developed crying, excessive secretions, opsoclonus, writhing, and tachycardia. He received sedatives and analgesia when he developed respiratory distress and arrested. He was intubated and treated with a variety of things. Uh, in Arizona? Yes. <laughs> Just curious. <laughs> uh, lungs were clear. Labs were kind of bad, but actually not that bad. Um, I'm going to skip to the end because you've obviously gotten it already. Uh, a chest x-ray was normal. He was given naloxone to relative oversedation. Pupils were fixed and dilated. Uh, no response uh, or panting between ventilator breaths. Um, and he expired on day two of suspected cerebral edema. Wow. So hold on. That clinical course is pretty well. So <clears throat> first off, pretty sure this is centuroides. Correct. Uh, so I, think it's, I think it's the ear pain that really... Um, the only thing that really makes that a little more gettable because um, if, if you wouldn't have I would that. really be honing in on based off of how rapidly this happened would be an organophosphate. Yeah. With the excess secretions. Yeah. They talk about writhing, excessive secretions. I'm like, this sounds like, it sounds like an organophosphate. The ear, the ear pain is the only clue really. I think that, um, you know, that, that it's, it's a sting of some sort. And then you honed in on it pretty quickly after that. Um, you said he had some eye as well. Yeah, opso, opso, talking about other things that are awkward to say, opsoclonus. So that I do, that would maybe make me hone in on scorpion. Yeah, so ear pain, immediately thinking probably envenomation or potentially infection, but you're not going to see all these other signs with infection. So the kinds of things that can create a fatal envenomation in the U.S., 
uh, or potentially fatal. You got scorpions, uh, neurotoxic snakes that you can find in Florida, the coral snakes, or uh, some in the southeastern Texas area. Then you have crotalid pit vipers, which you can find in a lot of areas in the U.S. Um, you know, really bad hymenoptera, uh, like multiple, multiple bee stings that can lead to anaphylaxis. There's some deaths from that every year. And then, you know, whatever weird pets people are keeping, I guess I'll assume uh, the dad didn't have death, you know, walker scorpions in the house. And, you know, there's other envenomations. You get brown recluse, gila monsters, you know, formaceae ants, black widow, woolly bears. There are other things that can bite and sting, but I'm thinking what has fatal potential. So then thinking about this case, he probably didn't get bit by a snake at night. <laughs> he probably, a black widow doesn't cause, you know, causes extreme pain. That seems more likely in a small canal like that, but. Um, also, there hasn't from, been a, a black widow fatality in about 20 years, at least. Exactly. That would just be so unusual. That, so that kind of leaves us with scorpions. And it would be the bark scorpion in Arizona that kind of matches up with this syndrome. You have excessive crying. You know, the bark scorpion venom has got all sorts of things that could depolarize cells and you get excessive sympathetic and cholinergic tone, pretty consistent with what we're seeing here. Um, and by my, I have no means um, really a scorpion envenomation expert uh, because this is really regional to the Southwest where the Centroides bark scorpion lives. And it's one of the only potentially fatal scorpions in the US. Um, I actually owned one at one point in my life because I was a edgy weird child who owned scorpions. <laughs> I uh, actually, my first paycheck after I, I worked at an arcade and with my first paycheck, I went across the street and I bought, uh, I went to the pet store and I was like, oh, they have scorpions. <laughs> so <laughs> I bought two uh, emperor scorpions, which are these big black ones with giant pincers. Um, and they're very non, their envenomations are pretty weak uh, because they uh, have such large pincers. So as a general rule for scorpions, the bigger the pincer, they can use that to defend themselves. So they're less toxic. You worry about the ones that have the little pincers because uh, they usually pack a punch. You know, the uh, best illustration that I've ever heard, um, and this, this will involve some potentially believable language. So I'm going to apologize in advance. <laughs> If you want to get creative in the name of learning, I am in full support. We can uh, add in some bleep noises uh, to to keep it PG afterwards. But did you, did you ever watch the the TV show on HBO Silicon Valley? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So basically, it's like when Russ Hahnemann um, sees Jared um, for the first time. He's like, Oh no, no, this guy. Hoxo here with a pop culture reference breakdown. Dr. Farkas is talking about a scene from the show Silicon Valley. In this scene, some very saucy language is used to call out a mild mannered and quiet man as actually being extremely dangerous. For our listeners' gentle ears, we have removed any reference to saucy language, but the point is a good one to remember. Though scorpion may appear less scary with small pincers, it may in fact mean it packs a higher envenomation punch. This has been your pop culture breakdown. Back to the show. <laughs> the yeah. little tiny pincers, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, is is uh is like it's like Jared from Silicon Valley. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, he looks at him, he sees this quite unassuming guy. He's like, oh no no. <laughs> uh, if you think you shouldn't be scared of a scorpion, that's when you should be scared of the scorpion. Exactly. Uh, so this patient, they developed the the classical toxicities, but then they decompensated pretty quickly. So you said they 
nightmarish by the way for your oh, oldest and i hear from um my um my fellowship director is uh, was tony Pison. he trained in um in arizona so and he said these things are like cockroaches you know in that part of the world like yeah. just, you see them all over the place it's like disgusting and like the other like classic thing that people do is they put glasses under the the bedposts because they can't climb up glass oh that's brilliant so oh. if put that there then they can't crawl into your kid's crib um oh. yeah could you imagine oh man awful um that's horrifying yeah. having to live where those if you're concerned about that you could put glass on that's a great idea house. that's why everyone checks their shoes before they put them on in the southwest and texas and all those places you got yeah, a high yeah. chance of critters in there so did they give antivenom i assume they did yeah so the things they gave were um i redacted it um but uh yeah they gave they gave uh um, atropine, epinephrine, flumazenil, bicarbonate, uh, and then five vials of scorpion antivenom. It sounds like that was after the code. It's not like the sort of thing I imagine that's just sitting in the Pixis, you know, ready to be given at a moment's notice. So it sounds like he came in with just like crying and then kind of completely decompensated. Man, that's rough. Wow. Good case. Okay. Well, good, good points though. You know, if you have a kid crying with Opsiclonus and and ear pain. That opsiclonus is a pretty interesting phenomenon. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Well, I got one for you. I don't know that they're necessarily a challenge, but they're kind of interesting. So a 22-year-old female was found seizing with emesis and cyanosis. She has a past medical history of asthma and anorexia. On arrival to the emergency department, she was unresponsive actually got intubated and received gastric lavage. Her initial labs showed a VBG pH of 6.9, um, PCO2 of 76. She had a sodium of 172, a potassium of 3.6, a chloride of 150, a bicarb of 16, a glucose of 405, anion gap was 6. And then all of her other labs were essentially unremarkable. Uh, she eventually developed increased tachycardia, abdominal distension, and rigidity. An X-lap showed gastric perforation with free air, and 70 centimeters of dead bowel was resected. She unfortunately had a cardiac arrest while in the OR getting the X-lap done, and they were not able to get her back, and she unfortunately died. So, Dr. Vargas, what do you think was responsible for this unfortunate case? Table salt? That would be correct. Table salt ingestion. When I heard cyanosis and suicide attempts, a lot of times my mind runs to the methemoglobinemia substances, you know, because mm-hmm. um, that's a popular suicide thing. And you mentioned uh, anorexia history. So you always got to be thinking suicide attempt and people look things up on the internet. Um, but then things kind of took a turn when you read me the metabolic panel. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the lack of an anion gap, despite the pH of 6.9 is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're, when you're talking, you know, lack of an anion gap, you're, 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 um, you're looking at, there's actually very few things it could be, um, sodium chloride bicarbonate, something's messing with one of those, one of those three things. Um, so you're either losing bicarbonate or you're gaining chloride or sodium or what have you. So that's, that's where I settled on table salt. 
Um, Absolutely. And I don't know how else you're going to get uh, sodium into chloride that high that quickly in an otherwise young and healthy person. Absolutely spot on. Table salt is actually also used as an emetic sometimes by people who are trying to you know vomit up whatever they ate in the bulimia neurosis disorders alongside other potential emetics like epicac. They sometimes use so just some toxins to maybe associate with anorexia or bulimia on a differential. Mm-hmm. They lavaged her because she had a, a table salt bezoar which was interesting. And then clearly, um, well, she developed intestinal necrosis. Osmotically trashed everything. Entire GI system. Yeah, pretty, pretty rough. I thought this was a good case for two reasons. One, I, I think a lot of people don't realize the potential dangers of table salt ingestion. I mean, you really don't need a ton in a little kid to to get kind of a nasty level. And then I thought it was a good review of potential differentials of these electrolyte abnormalities. So maybe we could walk through some here. Elevated sodium and cyanosis. Just like you said, the uh, met hemoglobin producing sodium salts like sodium nitrite, which is a common curing salt that people are using to induce met hemoglobinemia. And then they might have an elevated sodium as well. And then with those chloride, there's really only a couple of ways to get chloride that high. It's either chloride, bromide, or iodide. Oh, like a false positive on the lab? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because bromism, you see sometimes negative anion gaps. Yeah. Um, Are people taking dextromethorphan bromide? You can see an elevated chloride because um, it's up there a little bit, or uh, diquat dibromide. We did have one case where we had a person with an undetectably high chloride, and they'd end up, they'd bought, I think it was maybe sodium bromide on the internet. Uh, yeah, but you're right on table salt. An innocuous but very deadly substance out there. They're all deadly, right? Everything is deadly. Back to Paracelsus, the dose defines the poison. Absolutely. Another. Cool. Another. another. Right, can I just comment that I really enjoy your case reading voice? It's very, um, not theatrical, but almost like old timey. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it a lot. It's hard to keep it up then. Ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. A 45-year-old man uh, was driving a semi-truck carrying redacted uh, that collided with a train. There was no damage to the cab, and he was alert, but soon experienced difficulty breathing. EMS found him in respiratory distress with confusion, intubated him, noted vocal cord edema, and transported him to the emergency department. In the ED... He had bilateral scleral and conjunctival injection, erythematous eyelids, pupils equal and reactive to light, moist oral mucosa, diminished lung sounds in right base with occasional expiratory wheezes, extremities one to two plus edema of right lower extremity with trace lower extremity edema on the left. Uh, Post intubation, his oxygen saturation was 98%, blood pressure 135 over 63, um, that was on 100% FiO2, temperature is 36. Labs, arterial blood gas shows a pH of 7.11, PCO2 82, PO2 299, um, bicarbonate 26, white blood cell count uh, was 22. Okay. Is that, and then he died? Yeah. Um, clinical course, admitted to ICU, copiously irrigated um, uh, his eyes, which were as yeah. I mentioned, with the injection, um, chicks um, x-ray by basilar infiltrates, got antibiotics for presumed aspiration, respiratory 
status seemed to improve um, and he was weaned from the ventilator on day five, but then precipitously declined afterwards. Um, sorry, he had a pulmonary embolism uh, that complicated oh. his course. He had a PEA arrest and died. Oh, I wonder if he was on DVT prophylaxis. Uh-oh. So this sounds obviously like a high solubility irritant, uh, one that would be transported in a truck. Uh, and I'm keying in on that because he was in an accident, whatever he was carrying, which was redacted, uh, was probably released. And right away, you mentioned he had vocal cord edema. He had conjunctival injection. So when we talk about gaseous irritants, um, we characterize them into high and low solubility or intermediate solubility. Um, and this tells us how quickly their symptoms will onset because the irritants need to actually dissolve into our moist mucous membranes in order for them to enact their toxic effect. Uh, so the high solubility ones like chloramine, uh, ammonia, even actually hydrogen sulfide is considered a high solubility irritant, uh, will immediately dissolve in and cause symptoms right away, which is actually kind of a good canary sign because it tells people to get out of the exposure. But if you're in incarcerated exposure, like you're trapped in a truck and you can't get out or you're exposed to a very high amount at once, um, you're just going to, you know, at the end of the day, the dose makes the poison. So the longer you're exposed, the more severe symptoms you're going to develop. I'm thinking of things that would be transported in a truck. I'm thinking this is either chlorine, potentially anhydrous ammonia. I mean, those are, those are probably my two guys. I don't know why you'd transport chloramine. I don't know if that's something you do transport. But he comes in, he's got pretty severe, it sounds like, lung uh, problems. He's got some, uh, as well as some irritation on, on probably any part that was exposed to the gas. Uh, he develops ARDS, which is pretty consistent. Um, so I'm going to go with, you said it was a train. I wonder. Uh, it was a truck that collided with a train. Okay, because there was a really terrible incident of chlorine uh, of a train carrying chlorine can't remember the place we actually talk about it in the very first episode of the poison lab called cooking with war gas or cleaning with war gas and drinking jabble water i think but there's been some train accidents that should have released a large amount of chlorine so because of that i think i'm gonna go with chlorine gas so close you did mention the right answer though Okay, was it, is it, well, I guess they did never nebulize bicarb, so maybe that's a hint that it wasn't clearing it. Anhydrous ammonia? Anhydrous ammonia. All right, excellent. I could have given you a hint, um, which was, if you had asked for one, which was, it is the, because um, I looked it up, I was curious. It is the anhydrous ammonia, this is the hint I was getting used, it's the third um, most commonly transported toxic substance in the United States. Well, that is very interesting. It's used as a fertilizer. Yes. You, you bubble it through water. Uh, so it is gaseous and you just bubble it through water. Matt Stanton, big farm guy. He tells me a lot about the anhydrous ammonia. <laughs> I think uh, I give you credit because you listed it on your differential and it's a little bit tricky to kind of, you know, you, you, you had it very well narrowed down. Um, cause I did, yeah, there's not a ton of clues that specifically would direct you to this versus other other such the only thing i could think that would potentially differentiate would be the clinical course mm -hmm. and that would be chlorine gas has a small amount of data to support using nebulized sodium bicarbonate to try to and it, it does look like it imp improves pulmonary function testing but 
to try to neutralize the, the hydrochloric acid that chlorine gas makes. That's not necessarily a standard therapy. Like there's probably plenty of people who get exposed and don't get that. So I don't know. Right. Especially- depending on what the first hospital they come to is, it might not be a place where there's a ton of, you know, toxicologic expertise that's immediately yeah. available. Um, you know, they might just be uh, understandably, uh, you know, concerned with airway breathing and circulation and, um, you know, there's, and, and decontamination, of course, and then kind of yeah. moving on to the, the fancier stuff like nebulized bicarbonate. Oh, yeah. Um, for any of the pharmacists listening, I actually wrote a review chapter called smoke inhalation and toxic exposure. And in that chapter, we break down a lot of the inhalants, the low high solubility, the low solubility is you really got to worry about because they can have delayed toxicity, even though they initially appear somewhat. Okay. Phosgene. Phosgene, uh, oxides of nitrogen. You can see, uh, which is like Zamboni gas or silo gas. Um, so I, it's a PSAP chapter in the, uh, urgent and critical care book if you're interested, or you can reach out to me and I can probably give you some of the information from it. Uh, but not to the exact chapter because that would be copyrighted. Okay. Um, all right. You ready for another one? That was a great one. Do it. Okay. This one is just interesting, I think. So this is the first one I've done that's not from the fatality reports. Ooh. So with all the other ones, the first thing you're thinking is someone died from this from the first sentence. You know what I mean? Uh, Yeah. Well, this one, this one, maybe they didn't. I don't know. Yeah. I actually, I think they did. (laughs) So a 55 year old man with type two diabetes and cigarette smoking as a history presents to a community emergency department with two weeks of worsening non-productive cough. If shortness of breath, and one day of altered mental status as witnessed by their partner. She endorsed that uh, he developed an ataxic gait, confusion, and progressive shortness of breath, uh, but this altered mental status kind of acutely happened. He was placed on BiPAP and admitted to the ICU. Um, his vitals on arrival, his heart rate was 119, blood pressure normal. He was actually satting 65% on room air, but they got him up to 95% on 15 liters. He was oriented only to person. Imaging had chest x-ray with multifocal airspace disease. Labs were notable for a white count of 35, a bicarb of 14, an anion gap of 25. COVID. Right? That's <laughs> You got him. He's giving Decadron and Centra. <laughs> um, won't get the remdesivir. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so. You said an anion gap of 45. 25. 25. Oh, and a bicarb of 14. You know, obviously infections on their differential, but on interviewing with the wife, three of their cats died in the last two weeks. And he had recently come into possession of... Okay, I don't know how to phrase this without giving it away. (laughs) In the last few weeks, per the wife, he was boiling down dental amalgams on his kitchen stove. Yeah. (laughs) That one's incredibly hard to very easy in one sentence. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was just like, I was like, you know, you mentioned he's a smoker. I'm, like, I'm trying to think, like, what medications is this guy on? You know, like, you mentioned he's diabetic. So I was starting to think, like, oh, is it like Mala? You know, um, but then that doesn't explain the 
the pulmonary infiltrates. And then I was going back to like, was there some weird pesticide, you know, in the house when you mentioned the cat, um, you know, now I was thinking, Oh, could it be phosphine? But that's like too slow, you know? Um, and then you mentioned dental amalgams. I was like, oh, okay, it's merger. So don't try to get silver out of your old dental wear because you'll yeah. kill all your pets and your family. Uh, so for the listeners, there's a few types of mercury, elemental, inorganic, and organic. This is dealing with elemental mercury, which is in dental amalgams, which is actually pretty hard to get yourself exposed to. Yeah, it's the least toxic of all. Um, yeah. But this is the one where you're not supposed to vacuum it if it ends up on your carpet, because then you will. The only way you can really get sick from it is if you aerosolize it. Yes, it, it, it doesn't really absorb into the body unless you inhale it. There's some beautiful case reports of x-rays out there of people who have ingested mercury. And you could see these huge mercury globules in their GI tract that don't, you know, they don't get absorbed. They just get uh, completely passed through the human donut. And yeah, there's YouTube videos online of people dunking their hands in mercury and then going to get mercury tests. And that's really not advisable, but people are doing it. Um, can I tell you a story from fellowship? This wasn't my patient. This was just a passed down story through fellowship. Um, there was a patient who ingested elemental mercury and, um, and it got stuck in the appendix. Oh. And um, general surgery was consulted because they're like, well, do we have to take the appendix out? And there was this whole big thing about whether or not they'd be able to use the bovi because they were like, oh no, we'll aerosolize it in the OR. <laughs> If we do this, and the fellow at the time, one Dr. Andy King, who's now up at Wayne State in Detroit, suggested that the patient stand on his head for a few hours. (laughs) And it worked. (laughs) That's hilarious. It drained out of the appendix of standing on his head? They did follow-up x-rays. It was gone. That's unbelievable. That's brilliant. Well, okay. So there you go. Good toes. Uh, ingestion, you're unlikely to really get absorption. So the primary way for exposure to elemental is via aerosolization. So applying heat to mercury or using a device that will hurl it into the air with a thousand tiny brushes, like a vacuum, not a good idea. So they actually did testing on this guy. Mercury levels were sent on the patient and his wife and his daughter and public health was contacted. Uh, the patient had a toxic level of mercury. It was found to be about 400 nanograms per milliliter with a normal range being zero to nine. Uh, that was in his blood. And his urine mercury was 322. They chelate him? They don't actually mention chelation here. Acute mercury. That's, that's... You would probably, right? Yeah. like well, Chronic, uh, no. Chronic, you'll just redistribute it into the brain. But I would say it's it's in the serum compartment. I would go for it. I think he may have died before they could, to be honest here. So anyway, yeah, the EPA came out to his home. They, they, they tested it. It was 800 times the safe limit exposure. Elevated level or levels were also detected in his family member. And the source was volatilizing mercury via melting dental silver amalgam. Chelation was performed on the entire family. There we go. And the home was cleaned up. So actually, the reason I picked this case is when I was browsing Reddit for questions for the show, I came across this really tragic story. Uh, And it was actually posted in a Reddit uh, by somebody looking for legal advice. Uh, It was really, it was posted like a month ago. This is really makes me 
kind of sad. But let me read you what they posted here. It says, we purchased this home in June. One week in, a cat dies. The second week in, our other cat dies. Third week in, our son is in the hospital. They send him home because they can't figure out what's wrong. Fifth week, we are back in the hospital with their son. He's diagnosed with epilepsy. And the sixth week in, they found out he has mercury poison. Damage is irreparable. The EPA is called, and they locate a significant mercury spill in the bedroom. The previous owner shows up with an empty jar that was registering 100K nanograms per meter worth of mercury vapors. A lot. They have to evacuate. They have to rip out all of the flooring. Insurance is denying the claim. So this is someone who bought a house from somebody who had a previous elemental mercury. I mean, this is a nightmare. It's yes. killed all of their pets. Their son now has experienced serious health effects all because somebody had inappropriately or they spilled mercury. I mean, but these mercury spills, a true one, uh, really, I mean, it, it condemns your house. And this is why because you can have some unbelievable effects from it to everybody in the family. So mm -hmm. uh, EPA needs to get involved early. Anyways, when I read about their cats dying, that's what made me remember that case report that I read um, about the patient's cats dying after boiling the dental amalgams. So if multiple of your pets are dying in your home, that's usually not a good sign. Yeah. Maybe, maybe mercury is a potential cause that needs evaluation. Uh, as well as probably a few other toxins. Anyways, sorry for that kind of tragic case and bringing us down. And I really hope that family got appropriate medical care now. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the EPA is involved, so I'm sure they're linked up with care somewhere, but man, that's rough. Um, do we have any more cases? I don't have any more. I just had those two. Okay. I think those those were four good ones, right? They were so uh, Yeah. All right. Well, I think it's time to jump into our next segment, toxicologist versus the internet. Uh, both Dr. Farkas and I have gone to the internet uh, and sourced a couple of questions from reddit.com slash r slash ask drugs. We're going to pose the question to each other, allow whoever is being asked the question to philosophize about the potential cause, and then whoever asked the question can fill in, the, fill in any additional information that they like. So would you like to go first? Or you want me to go first? I'll go first. I want to see how you handle it. Probably not very well, but I will do my best. All right. Um, all right. So the title of this question, which pretty much explains it all is benzene in cigarettes in drug tests. Hmm. Hi, I have to take a five panel drug test that will test for benzodiazepines. I smoke <laughs> cigarettes and have seen they contain benzene. <laughs> Will the benzene appear in the test? That is hilarious. They both have bends. They Dr. do. Feldman. They have the bends in them. They both have bends. Boom. That's hilarious. Now, what's interesting is it's a five-panel drug test before employment, and usually that's the NIDA five, which are the, the five drugs that um, NIDA recommends pre-employment screening for, and benzos aren't actually on there. Uh, the original like five drugs that they recommended for employment screening. It's like LSD, PCP, cocaine. Maybe it is benzos. I'll have to look again. Hold on. I think it depends because I Google this too. And I got, I got interestingly, yeah, um, five things that were not exactly the same and that did not include 
benzodiazepines. So, oh yeah, when I Google the nine to five, it's cannabinoids, cocaine, amphetamine, opiate, PCP. So somewhere he's just doing it. Why are we still looking for PCP so we can find dextromethorphan? I don't get that. Yeah, yeah, right. I have no idea who's using PCP now. Yeah, uh, it's all about the ketamine these days. Exactly. Um, so long and short, no, this is not going to test positive. Um, the benzodiazepine i'm just going to take a look at a general scaffold structure so it depends on what the urine drug screen is the specific one but how do you screen for a whole class of compounds well and we've talked about this a whole lot uh urine drug screens are just that they're screens and they're usually uh enzyme linked or some type of immunoassay where they use an antibody fragment to uh uh basically latch on to part of a molecular structure. Sometimes ones that screen for say fentanyl actually are looking for paparidine rings and because that's in fentanyl and that can cross-react with certain antipsychotics that have paparidine in them. Um, in this instance, the last time I looked this up, most benzo screens look for oxazepam, which is a, uh, it's a metabolite of a lot of different benzos. So like alprazolam and diazepam, all kind of a few others, they all have this oxazepam metabolite. I don't think lorazepam. I could be wrong on that. Though. Lorazepam does not because that one is directly glucouronidated. So that yeah. one often is false negative. And then you can get false positives from all sorts of other things. It, the only way you could screen for every drug in the class is if you had an antibody specific for every drug in that class, which no screener is going to do that. Um so instead, they try to look for like a shared molecular piece that all of those drugs have. Um, and I'm actually just going to look up a Ben. Now, benzene just refers to a six carbon ring with um, three carbon carbon double bonds. And when I look at the, benze the benzodiazepine scaffold, um, I see there are actually two benzene rings in it. But benzene or aromatic six carbon rings are in almost everything. So, I mean, there's so many different things. There's no way that an ELISA would probably be targeting just that. I mean, like, I think phenytoin, probably even catecholamines, your natural neurotransmitters. I mean, there's some, it's in a lot. If you made an antibody that could somehow just target a benzene ring, you would get false positives for almost everything. The other thing too, I think there's not a lot of like, like the, you have to figure that the electron structure of like raw benzene is going to be like very different. Once you add one OH group, you know, like if you make it phenol or toluene or whatever, that those electrons are going to start behaving very, so even if it does have a benzene ring, sort of um, kind of shooting from the hip here, but I have to believe that an antibody is going to have very different things to say about, about how those electrons are moving, you know, and what, what the true shape of that molecule is once you conjugate anything to it yeah so i think the long and short is no this definitely no. is not going to screen i i'm great creative question from the user though yeah i liked it i liked it i i love those things where it's like superficially like where it's like it's got bends in it you know um but yeah i even was looking up benzene metabolism you know for my yeah researching this question and it goes into a bunch of things it, it turns into phenol and from there onto hydroquinone and catechol mm -hmm. and then the benzoquinones um, and so on and so on. So, um, you know, most of that benzene isn't even going to make it into your urine. It's going to be metabolized first um, into something, you know, that's probably going to behave chemically very different from, from benzene itself. Yeah. I thought it was fun. Yeah, that is good. Phenol. Ugh, gives me the heebie-jeebies. 
Now, can you, can you send a phenol level? Probably not. Yeah, yeah, I'm just not thinking about how would you detect benzene exposure, but um, I think occupationally they do it with like urine phenol, but then yeah, like um, and then toluene I think is hyperic acid. Yeah, um, toluene hyperic. I think there's I think they actually test for the metabolites in the urine of people who work in facilities. Um, you know that that process these things. Um, I had a, a chemistry teacher in OCHEM who would say. Oh yeah, we used to wash our hands with benzene all the time. But he was like, "Don't worry, that was before it was a carcinogen." <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I, and I, I tell people when I talk about benzene, benzene's um, it's one of the 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 few carcinogens that 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 is pretty focused on um, on bone marrow stuff uh, and hematogenous like cancers. Um, you know, there's tons of carcinogens out there, but they tend to produce a lot of squamous cell carcinomas and you know, adenocarcinomas, um, you know, like, like, you know, in your lung or what have you, or, or in your skin, um, you know, probably is the most common is skin cancer, um, or we're yeah. talking about carcinogens. Um, but benzene's unique. If you see it on a board question, um, uh, if they're talking about any sort of hematopoietic malignancy, you know, benzene's probably the right answer. Love it's, it. it's a special thing. Awesome. All right. Well, that was a great question. I, I, I enjoyed that. Thank you. The next question okay. is alcohol and cocaine a good combination? Question mark. Uh, <laughs> Hold on. Here's the text of the question. I'm attending a festival this weekend. I'm considering mixing alcohol with cocaine. I heard it gets you feeling sober though. What mm -hmm. is it like? And is it recommendable for a festival? Also, what are the health risks attached of mixing the two? <laughs> so we can focus maybe on the health risks. We could do all of it. So yeah, as with, as with so many of these questions, you could just stop at no, <laughs> but that's not what people want to hear. They want to hear why. So this young gentleman or woman, we'll never know, has stumbled onto a metabolic peculiarity uh, that is fairly unique and clinically relevant, which is that when combined cocaine, so cocaine normally has a half-life of about an hour. Um, and is cardiotoxic and, you know, is basically a perfect storm of vasoactive complications. They, you know, spasm or thrombosis. It's bad on so many levels. It's a vasoconstrictor. It's, it's going to cause um, uh, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine release that's going to increase your blood pressure on top of that and uh, lead to this agitated state. And then on top of all those things, it's also activating platelets. Um, so when I talk about cocaine, I like to say, if there's a part of your body that enjoys blood flow, cocaine can mess with it. <laughs> cocaine can infarct it. So that's, that's bad news by itself. Cocaine by itself, terrible idea. Unless you're like, you know, receiving it from a, an otolaryngologist who's trying to get good, you know, anesthesia slash uh, control of, of bleeding. That, that's very expensive cocaine though, that you're getting that. That is, oh, you would, you guys, you pharmacists, would, you're all into that. I'm like, uh, I just ordered this thing. You're like, do you have any idea how much money you just spent? And like the doctor's always like, no, <laughs> I just, Edison ordered is it. not an unlimited resource. I, I just type it into Epic and then I hit enter and then I click on it and then it happens. <laughs> Once printed somebody there, uh, a copy of the $160,000 charge for the drug they just ordered and gave it to them. And I was like, just so you know. <laughs> just anyway, sorry, let's, let's keep going. Oh, tangents, tangents happen. So anyways, when you throw, when you throw ethanol into the mix, 
um, you get a metabolite called cocaethylene, and this takes your one-hour half-life and turns it into 12. So, I mean, maybe you maybe that's getting you more value for your money on your cocaine. But as I understand it, it's um, it's a more cardiotoxic metabolite as well. So it's like you know probably less of the reason you used cocaine, and even more of the reason why you shouldn't um, when you're gonna put cocaethylene in your system from this little this little metabolic byproduct. So so you're taking your your thing that was already a very risky drug to begin with, and you're making it longer lasting, but not in a good way. So that's not advised. Excellent explanation of the toxicities of the cocaethylene metabolite. This was actually when I remember learning about this in pharmacy school. We had a drugs of abuse course and my pharmacology professor explained cocaethylene. And it was one of those things where I was like, wow, science is crazy uh, that people even track this stuff. So under normal metabolic conditions, you create two metabolites of cocaine. So you create the, and I hate pronouncing this. So uh, the C and the G together always mess you up. Yeah, what? Yeah, benzoyl co- benzyl is the best I could do. <laughs> and then uh, that's actually the metabolite we look for uh, on urine drug screen. And then you actually create an echognine methyl ester as well as another metabolite. But anyways, cocaine metabolism in the presence of alcohol, you actually transesterify with the ethanol and you get cocaethylene, which is so, so much easier to say which just as you said, is longer lasting and actually in some instances more potent. The human, they've actually uh, shown in human studies uh, where they basically administer cocaethylene versus patients who just get cocaine. And they found there was potentially some more tachycardia. I think it was animal studies that showed more potent vasoconstriction. Um, depending on what you read, it says it's like up to 25 times more toxic or more potent than cocaine. Um, I did, I didn't search extensively, but I did find some trouble really supporting that. But what's interesting is even actually, if you put it in rat, like studies where they do drug differentiation, where they like, here's your two bottles of drug, choose which one you like the most. The rats will, will even go for cocaethylene more than cocaine, which is interesting. And it appears to be actually much more dopaminergic than cocaine is, which would actually explain some of the increased tachycardia and things that you would see. So absolutely, you are increasing your risk of cardiovascular effects by co-consuming ethanol and cocaine, and you are increasing your duration of action. Um, and this was actually put, this question was already answered by another Reddit user who uh, in this question states, this is a bad combo. These two drugs react in the liver to produce cocaethylene, a toxic substance that attacks the heart. It killed my mom at a house party, gave her a heart attack. Do acid or speed instead. Great. Provide a safer alternative. That's awesome. Yeah. It was like, uh, God. So I'm sorry, user. Uh, I appreciate your vigilance in promoting safe drug use, but I don't know that we should promote uh, safe, LSD or methamphetamine. Safe, safer? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I thought that was a, I thought that was a great chance to discuss some coke. I have more on that subject because uh, I've. This is a another question because I've thought about this. Oh yeah. If you were, if if this is purely hypothetical, but if you had to use some illicit recreational substance, what do you think is the safest one pharmacologically? 
Safest in terms of psychological or physical effects, I guess would be one of my questions. Uh, I would say least likely to cause a medical complication. Hmm. I guess I would think, I mean, ketamine's certainly up there. Although that actually like one time use (laughs) because I see EMS giving huge doses to people in the pre-hospital and I guess they do okay. Like one use, right? And we're controlling for dose. It's probably okay. But let's say like whatever it is, you're using enough to induce like significant psychoactive yeah 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 that's the thing and i mean all of it really comes down to dose so that's the problem but ask me like, what, I'd pick. what ask me what i'd pick i've never done it all right go ahead what, what would you pick? salvia salvia because hmm. it's, it's 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 not even serotonergic as yeah. a blue and it's in and out it's like just a couple minutes that's I, true I, that that's a good salvia is that you run in front of a bus you know what i mean <laughs> Well, that, that actually, all right. So we've had, <laughs> I have had, it doesn't say medical complications. If, if okay. I've had multi-trauma out people. of your freaking mind, even if it's only for five minutes, because you could jump out a window or run in front of a bus. And that wow. there's literally wow. videos online of people falling out of a window doing salvia. And that's video, <laughs> both of us. Yeah. Independently, yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, but I think medically it's like, have you ever heard of someone having a actual medical complication of salvia? And I would say, no, no, it's still a bad idea for other reasons, but, um, but it's, it's so short acting and the mechanisms just aren't that, um, concerning to me that I have a feeling it's extremely unlikely that you would get a a bad problem from it other than, uh, uh, a city bus. That would be my concern. But I think that's actually a high risk. <laughs> yes, it is. And that's why this is a lawyerly parsed question with yeah. the with the specific intonation of medical complication, not medical. not behavioral complication, which the risk of that would be very high. Um, so we were talking about this a little bit in one of the old episodes, episode five with Matt. So LSD is actually a partial agonist at the serotonin receptor which I think would potentially limit its toxicity. And you don't hear about a ton of serotonin syndrome. No, I agree. The, the thing is, when people say I used acid these days, it's not LSD. It's right. the, and a lot of clinicians think that it is. Because when you, someone comes in, they're agitated. Yes, the friend's like, what happened? He's like, oh, he used an acid. And someone's like, oh, LSD. Wow. And like, no, no, no. It's like N-bombs or Bromo Dragonfly or yeah, two yeah. compounds or something like that. All those phenylethylamines. Um, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's not really LSD. It's, it's, uh, acid doesn't mean, is, at least among the people who use it, doesn't mean that anymore. Um, yeah. One thing I often uh, have to tell people because otherwise they're kind of confused. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. All right. Well, let's, let's stay on the realm of Totally hypothetical questions. Okay. Uh, I'm asking this question because it was requested by a prior EM resident. What? You get three drugs to bring to the apocalypse. What are you going to (laughs) bring? Oh, like medical drugs to treat people? Uh, I'll accept poisons too if you want. I mean, they're all kind of. All right. So as a toxicologist, I feel like I'm honor bound to say lorazepam. Uh, but we'll need Chill everyone out. We'll need yeah. behavioral control, and someone might have a seizure. Um, so I, f- I feel like I can't get away from saying that. Um, I think the the obvious antibiotic. This is assuming you're going to have an IV. Oh, I think maybe midaz. 
All right. All right. I can, I can All right. If you haven't, like, so we do have IV access? I don't think so. I, oh, we don't. So we I don't think so. Go, or... The zombies aren't running around with IVs. <laughs> I am or something like that. All right. Well, maybe. All right. A benzo. Um, oh, I'm, uh, I'm open to different different possibilities there. It's the apocalypse, so we probably can't be too picky. That's true. Um, I think for an antibiotic, you'd have to go with doxycycline <laughs> um, because it probably would be useful on the greatest number of things. Um yeah. Probably. Um, and then the third. That's a toughie. I guess prednisone, something like that. Yeah. That's useful for a broad range of conditions, you know, asthmatics, rheumatologic stuff. Um, so, yeah, I would take uh, those three. Do you want one more? Go take one more. Uh, one more. Hmm. I feel like I have to pick something from a totally different family if we're going to go one more. Uh, I write constantly. Hmm. I don't know. You pick one and I'll think of my, my fourth one. Well, I, I, so I had a little time to think about this. I think I posed this question on Twitter once. I was like, it was actually what five drugs would you use to run an emergency department? Hmm. And it was like mag, Tylenol, prednisone, uh, like moxie and something else. I can't remember. I was looking for the most pleiotropic drugs, like things you could use for just everything. I realized mag you can use for everything but you can't like just use mag for everything yeah, it's, it's always an agent except yeah. for except for eclampsia <laughs> yes eclampsia and potentially towards odds uh so all right here's what i came up with EpiPen. well oh it's not a bad idea epinephrine, epinephrine period um, i did put in stimulant of some kind <laughs> all right, all right. you might be running from from some kind of something for a day I don't know where what stemmed this apocalypse, but if they give it to soldiers during World War II, you might want it during the apocalypse. Um, well, my number one was actually rock, rock uranium. Okay. For, for, <laughs> I mean, that's where where paramedics originally came from. They try to attack you or something. Exactly. I mean, does, does rock uranium work on zombie physiology? You know, I thought that. And I was like, their acetylcholine receptors should be the same. The only thing would be if they had, because you can reverse rock with neostigmine a mm. little bit. And I was like, so maybe if they have like excessive acetylcholine stimulation, they, uh, they they might be resistant to it. But I don't think so. I think you can rock a zombie. So a super concentrated rock. So I can just dart zombies and buffaloes and live off the land. Uh, I went with ketamine for pain control as well as potentially crowd control. <laughs> if you have a, an aggressive uh, apocalyptic uh, tribe coming for you, you can at least use that to sedate. I chose Augmentum as the antibiotic because I th- I figured that would cover most things. Doxy is absolutely covers all the weird stuff too, like the plague and all sorts of things. The zoonoses, uh, the, yeah. the MRSA even. Yeah, and the MRSA. I'm just going to try to keep keep my staff susceptible and I'll go with that. But that covers pneumonia, UTI, poorly covers GI, you know, assuming you're not. Actually, you're probably most likely to get GI because you're going to be eating weird stuff, right? So maybe I should I should probably pick something better that, that covers. I, I want to do, can we do the pharmacist nightmare five drugs next? Because I'm going to choose Cipro. Uh, Lumazenil. <laughs> yeah. Oh, IV Tylenol. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. 
Just I want the top five. It, I'll be talking about PO. <laughs> oh, I'm blanking on the name. What's the one that reverses? Um, the oh. the the one that claw reverses. Um, Index and the- alpha for oh. antitenase. A drug that has $134,000 and has no comparative clinical data. That sounds good. No, um, I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a great choice. It is. Um, but also the, um, no, the one that reverses, um, rock, the big, Oh, Sugamidex. Yeah. Wow. Sugamidex. Yeah. Yeah. I, you're, I am visibly upset. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is Talk the real the top five drugs. If, if you asked me the question and then I wanted you to hate me, uh, <laughs> instead of actually treat patients, I that pick Flazenil, Sugamidex, IV Tylenol, um, and uh, and Cipro. Yeah, that's you're doing a pretty good job. That's probably, <laughs> those are some of the top offenders, I would say. That's pretty good. All right, I, I like that. Uh, I think that was only four, but we'll stop there. That's okay. It's going to be a bleak apocalypse, man. Let me tell yeah. you. <laughs> Might as well. If you're gonna if you're gonna have an apocalypse, I say lean into it. You know, that's true. Make it make it dark. You want these useful NSAIDs? No, no, no. I want I want I want you to open up a box of like medical supplies and have it just be vials of Sugamidex. (laughs) (laughs) You're just gonna run around and reverse all the zombies. (laughs) All right, we have officially derailed from anything near perimedical. So. I, I think we got to cap it there. We're we're nearing an hour, but that, that was a great end. Aw. Do you have any final words of wisdom or uh, toxicology tidbits you'd like to leave with our, our listening audience? I've spoken my piece for today. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, I think this is one of the most fun shows we've done. Naturally. As I predicted, you are the perfect guest. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me on. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Enjoy the rest of your day. Ryan, don't forget to remind listeners to check the show notes for any studies and data mentioned in the show. Great reminder, Doxo. Don't forget to check the show notes for any references that we cite during the show. I think that'll wrap it up for today. That was a really fun episode. If you like what you were listening to, don't forget to subscribe to the show. We're available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And more importantly, leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing so we can help make this show more entertaining and educational for you. Plus, it really helps us find new listeners, so we appreciate your help. To keep up to date with the show, you can check out www.thepoisonlab.com. Yes, I know if you type in thepoisonlab.com, you get a weird error. We're working on this. Uh, But that's where you'll find all of our free medical games, medical education resources like YouTube lectures, as well as all episodes of The Poison Lab. And you should definitely follow us on social media so you know when we release new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at LabPoison or myself at EMPoisonFarmD and on Instagram at Talks underscore Talk or our Facebook page, The Poison Lab. We'll always post when we have a new show coming on all of those social media outlets. Finally, keep your ears and eyes peeled because we'll be posting the teaser to our next episode soon. If you think you know the toxin that could be responsible for the clinical effects, we're going to want you to write in to ToxTalk1 at gmail.com so you can be part of our next episode. But I think that'll wrap it up for today. Thanks for listening. Hope you can join us next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. 
contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is fully written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Ta for now.